little bit of a summary of where we've come from the last four weeks. We see that Jonah is this Old Testament prophet. He's just a, he's just a crazy guy, okay? This is one of the craziest stories in Scripture. Um, we look at this man, this Old Testament prophet, a guy that was doing full-time ministry for God. And at one point, God gives him a new assignment. He calls him to go to this, this, uh, this, this uh, country called Nineveh. Um, which was made up of, uh, of, of the Assyrian people. And uh, Jonah doesn't like the assignment. Um, God, gives him, God gives him this particular mission to go to, to preach judgment on the people of Nineveh, who happen to be an enemy nation of, of Israel. And Jonah, being a prophet for Israel, he's like, I'm not having it, God. And so what he does is he takes off, he packs his bags. And instead of getting on the ship to Nineveh, he gets on a ship going the direct opposite way to a, to a country called Tarshish. And God had still other ideas because when God uh, tells us to do something, what we know about being God's sons and daughters is that even when he tells us to do something and we resist, eventually he just pulls us back in because God is not the kind of God that is easily thwarted. And I'm so glad I got to use the word thwarted because it's hard to say and I just, I nailed it. Um, But what happens is Jonah gets on this ship and uh, God sends a storm. God appoints a storm. And uh, the strangest things start happening to Jonah, all right? Um, The first strange thing that happens to Jonah is that he's on a ship, a storm comes, the ship is getting ready to go under, and God just, uh, God has a revival. God does a revival through Jonah on the ship with the sailors and the mariners who did not trust in the same God that Jonah allegedly trusted in, and he brings all of these sailors uh, into... uh, into a relationship with him, into trusting God for salvation. But the payoff was that the sailors had to throw Jonah over the side of the ship into the ocean for the ocean to stop raging. So that's what they do. And they trust God. They say, hey, don't hold this man's life uh, on our account, um, but, but we're just doing what he's asking us to do. So they hurl Jonah over the side of the ship. He, uh, he lands in the ocean, and then God does another very strange thing. So after, after just uh, causing this revival to break out in the middle of this storm on a ship, uh, God sends this whale to, uh, to, to have a little lunch, Jonah being the sandwich. And uh, Jonah actually ends up spending three days and three nights in the belly of a whale. And something interesting happens while he's in the belly of a whale is that he comes to his senses. He comes to his senses in just the horror of being in that particular situation, which is really hard for us to imagine. God brings him to repentance. He sees what he's done. He ends up praying to the Lord. He writes a poem to the Lord. He finishes all up by saying salvation belongs to the Lord. And then he actually uh, recommits himself to accomplishing the mission that God first sent him on, which is to go to Nineveh and and preach this sermon. This was uh, Jonah's sermon, and you probably heard this last week with Pastor Chris, and it was this, yet 30 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That That was Jonah's message. That was his sermon as he basically walked up and down the streets of Nineveh for, for one day preaching this sermon. And I know what you're thinking, Substance Church. Why can't your sermons be that short, man? Why can't they be that short? And my answer to you is they, they can be, but do you really want them like that, right? Do you really want it yet 40 days and Ashland shall be overthrown? I mean, I can get up here every week. I mean, you're going to make my week a lot easier, right? If I only have to show up on Sundays and that's like, I already got that memorized, I don't, even have to, I don't even have to prepare for that if that's how we want it to be. But then something really happens. And one of the most bizarre twists ever, even in Scripture, the people, the city, the country of Nineveh, they all repent. 
They all put on sackcloth. They bow their heads before the Lord and they say, woe is me. Don't punish us, Lord. And so in one day, Jonah leads one of the greatest one-day revival movements of all time. And what's so crazy about it is he gets mad. Jonah gets mad. He's not happy. He just spent three days and three nights in the belly of a whale. You'd think he'd be a little happy just to be alive and to accomplish the mission, preach the sermon that he had all that time to memorize because it's only one sentence. And and he's not. He's angry. There's something wrong. There's something off in the heart of Jonah. I mean, that would be like if Billy Graham sold out Progressive Field, the entire city of Cleveland got saved, and Billy just stomps away angry at God. I know Billy's not with us anymore. I'm just using a hypothetical right now. But I mean, you'd be like, Billy, do we need to have a chat about how you define success? Like, what are we talking about here? You preach a one-sentence message and an entire city comes to Christ. And what we see in Jonah is we see a man full of contradictions, okay? What we see in Jonah is is us, actually. And when we read Scripture, we want to put ourselves not in this outer rim or in this other category to where we look at the people that the Bible is revealing these things about and say, well, that's, that's interesting that that is them and that that happened to them and that that was what was going on and surfacing their heart. No, 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 no. We want to see and understand Jonah as being very, very close to how we act and how we react when God gives us particular things and particular missions and particular uh, commands to obey, okay? But this is what Jonah is as we get into the final chapter here in chapter 4. He's a, he's a man full of contradictions. So let's just pick up in verse 1. And it says this, It pleased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, Is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, uh, please take my life from me. For it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said... Do you do well to be angry? Do you do well? That's the question God asked Jonah twice as we get to the end of chapter 4. Jonah thought that his anger was justified. The Ninevites, again, like I said a minute ago, they were enemies of Israel. In fact, the prophet Hosea, if you go a a few books back, the prophet Hosea, who was a a contemporary of Jonah, he actually prophesied at one point that in the future, the Assyrians, the the Ninevites, um, would destroy the northern kingdom of Israel. I mean, it may have been that Jonah knew this, and so he was angry at why God would spare a nation, that he would bring an, an enemy nation to repentance that would one day wipe out his people. It just doesn't make a lot of sense, right? And what I think is so interesting about this is that we we throw around lines like, you know, God moves in mysterious ways. You you guys have heard that line. But in actuality, we wish he didn't. We wish he didn't move in mysterious ways. We wish he was predictable. We wish that God would play by our rules. Jonah wishes God would do what he thought God was obligated to do. 
So again, what the Bible does, what Scripture does, is it's always calling us back to what we think about who God is, not based on God's word, not based on what God tells us about himself in Scripture, but about our own, but about our, our, our own descriptions, our own myths that we create about God that a lot of times don't have anything to do with Scripture. And the reason why we do that is because God does move in mysterious ways. And when we see something or we can't see something that is not so easily explainable, the thing that we do in our pride and in our arrogance and in our ignorance is we try to bring him down to our level. And God's not having that. He's just not having that. What's so interesting here about verses 1 through 4 is that Jonah, he knew God's character. It's amazing what he just spoke about God. That was like gospel truth. He knew God's character, but he didn't know God's plans, so his trust came up short. So that could be some of you that have grown up in church and you've been around church culture. You can say, yeah, God is good. You can say God is loving. You can say God is merciful, gracious, slow to anger, relenting. You'd be able to affirm and ascribe all of those things to God intellectually and when it's convenient. But when those moments come when you don't know what God is doing and you can't figure out his plans because he moves in mysterious ways, then you come up short and now your doctrine isn't aligned with your life. And it could be that maybe, maybe Jonah's anger was just highlighting his, his fear. I mean, there's some legitimate fear going on here. C.S. Lewis once said, he said, we are not necessarily doubting that God will do the best of us. We are wondering how painful the best will turn out to be. Sometimes that's us. Maybe Jonah felt that way as, as well. So then he finally explains, he finally explains why the heck he tried to run from God. All this time we dive into chapter one and we see Jonah getting this assignment from God and he ends up just going the other way and we're not really sure why. And right here he explains why he ran from God to Tarshish and it's almost funny. So if you don't think scripture's funny, you gotta read a little bit and get sort of the, what, what, what you can speculate could be the tone here because he basically says, God, I knew you'd be this amazing and awesome. It sounds like he's trying to set God up for something, right? I knew you'd be this amazing and awesome. He describes God's greatness the way uh, God actually described himself to Moses in Exodus, right? When you read the book of Exodus, you, you see God saying, I am a gracious God. I am merciful. I am slow to anger. I abound in steadfast love. Except Jonah, Jonah's like saying it like it's a bad thing. He's like kind of throwing it at God saying, I knew you would be this way. I knew that the character, the attributes that you unfailingly display are actually going to be detrimental to me and what I want. Man, Jonah is just, Jonah's dramatic, isn't he? I mean, Jonah is just dramatic. Look what he says in verse 3. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. I mean, that's that's dramatic. I mean, Melissa always accuses me of being dramatic, right? She's always saying, gosh, that was a really dramatic thing you just said. And I'm thinking like, baby, I've never said that. Like, I feel like I have this now to say, did I just say the Jonah line? And she's going to be able to say, well, no, you know. But please take my life for it is better for me to live than to die. I mean, what was Jonah thinking? 
I mean, do you, can, you, can you just imagine the heart of a man that would get to a place that after God saves 120,000 people, his thought is that it would, better, it would be better for him to, to die than to live? What did he think God was going to do with his request? What do we think God does with some of our requests? I mean, did he think the Lord was going to say, you know what, Jonah, you, you make a compelling argument, give me a minute here and I'll, you know, I'll put together a lightning bolt and we'll see where that goes and you know, we'll see what happens after that, right? God had just spared him from a, a whale, from being in the belly of a whale, from, from whale indigestion, right? He just spared him from that. And you know what's interesting is that this is not something that we don't see in Scripture. This is something that we see in Scripture. We see men coming before God in such a lowly place for whatever reason has caused it. And they've come to a particular moment in their lives where they feel like it would be better for them to not be alive. We remember the prophet Elijah and we remember him saying, it is enough, God, take my life. I can't take the pressure anymore. This is too much. Now, Elijah's circumstances were definitely different than Jonah. But you know what we see in this is we see the character of God with Jonah like we saw it with Elijah in that he was patient. He was patient with Elijah. He was patient with Jonah. Jonah throws out all of this, all of this stuff and God just says, hey, brother, do you do well to be angry? And, you know, he's patient with us too. God is patient with us when we're at our worst, when we aren't seeing clearly, when our hearts are in just a funky, horrible place. What Jonah needed from God in this moment was the very mercy God had given to the Ninevites. He just didn't know it. Sinclair Ferguson, he actually has a name for this. He calls this infantile spiritual regression. Infantile spiritual regression. He says, this is quote, he says, just as in natural life when the approach of a crisis or the weight of a burden seems to force some people back into childish and inappropriate forms of behavior for mature adults, the same can happen in the spiritual realm. So we can regress into this sense of infantileness. I was going to ask Melissa if she could recall any moment like this in, in my life, but I knew she couldn't, so I didn't ask her. Um, actually, there was something that I came up with. Um, my, my brother was born the, the week before Christmas, and um, man, when I was a kid, it was hard to see that dude get all those gifts a, a, a week before Christmas. I mean, it, I mean it, literally, it literally felt like my parents like, had him the week before Christmas on purpose, just to like, get back at all the other kids, you know, and just say, you know what? You know, we're going to get you some things in a week, but look what we're going to do with this guy right now, right? And, um, but this is what was so interesting that I, I, I wouldn't have gotten as, as a 7, 8, 38-year-old, right, you know, um, is that the, the generosity that benefited my brother was the same generosity that benefited me, right? It just fell a week before Christmas. Their generosity benefited me in June uh, for my birthday. I just didn't want him to have it. I just didn't want him to have it. There was something constricting inside of me. I wanted that generosity to only go one way. Now, do you see yourself like this in some ways? Can you, can you see yourself in this? Man, we can sing Amazing Grace like we just did, 
but only want it if we get to define the ways that it would be amazing for us, right? When God applies it to our life in ways that he defines as amazing, we won't have it. We stomp our feet. We throw a tantrum. We drown in self-pity. We pout like babies. How do we do that? What are some of the ways that we do that? Well, I don't know. How do you feel when you look at Instagram these days? We live in an Instagram world. How do you feel when you look at Instagram? Do you see others as receiving something that they don't deserve because they're able to put their highlight reel up there for us every day? Do you cast judgment on them? We see God blessing other people with things that we think we should be blessed with, right? Beautiful spouses or amazing vacations. They have these adorable children, the great jobs, the big promotions. They have these satisfying ministry positions. They have these amazing, incredible houses. Hey, look, I got my close friends and my deep relationships. The question that we have to ask ourselves in that is this. Are they receiving a different love than we receive? Are they receiving a different grace than we receive? Are they receiving a different mercy than we receive? Were the Ninevites receiving something different that Jonah had received in abundance? Because what we know about God, and what we're going to see here in a minute, is that the same God that blesses is the same God that also withholds blessings for the good and the blessing of his people. The same God that blesses also withholds blessings for the good and the blessing of his people. And so we don't do well to be angry either. We do well to acknowledge our anger, though, and to turn from it. And things get even crazier in verse 5. Let's, let's keep reading. It says, Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. And now the Lord appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to live than die. couple things going on here at the end. Apparently, Jonah thinks God might change his mind. So he sets up a lawn chair outside the city to see what God might do. That God might not relent from punishing the Ninevites, but that he might relent and punish the Ninevites, right? Again, we got to keep this in context. We got to remember what just happened. 120,000 people just repented as a nation before the Lord. How does God respond to Jonah in this? Well, I think very interestingly, he appoints a plant and he gives Jonah shade, shade being a good thing here, all right, just to keep it in context, right? But then the next morning, what happens? Well, he appoints a worm to eat the plant. And again, a worm that, that size that can eat, I mean, that's like describing a nightmare for me if I'm sleeping under this plant and so I wake up and some worm has gobbled up the plant. Um, and then a scorching east wind to beat down on Jonah's head. All of it's coming from God. 
the shade from the plant, the worm eating the plant, and the wind on Jonah's head, it's all coming down on Jonah from God. And so you ask the question because you have to ask the question. Is God playing with Jonah? Is he just messing with Jonah? Because you know that we have days like that, don't we? We have days like that. We think, God, what are you doing? We're surprised and we're angry when anything goes wrong in our lives. In fact, we, we can tend to think like, man, God is just, he's picking on me. It's just a series of unfortunate events in my life. Man, I remember when we first moved out here, we had a Jeep, and this was about eight or so years ago, and we moved out here, and we were, we were here a couple of months, and the engine went, the engine went out on our, I'm not getting choked up about that, um, the engine went out on our Jeep, and... Um, I remember thinking, oh, man, so this is how it's going to go in Ohio, right, you know? And um, so the engine goes out, and, and you know, we're like, you know, we're like 397,000 miles past our warranty, you know, and all those things. So we call Jeep, and Jeep's like, awesome. They're like, yeah, no, it should have went now. We'll, we'll buy you. We'll get you a new engine. So we're like, oh, my gosh, you know, just surprised and shocked, you know, that something that great happened. The problem was is that like six months later, the engine went again, you know, and it's like one of those come on, you know, kind of moments, right? And um, so I, I called Jeep and I'm like, you know, whatever, I'm going to take a bath on this, you know, just already angry, not even happy that they paid for the first engine. And sure enough, they said, yeah, we'll, we'll just put another engine in it for you, you know, free of charge. And, and it's, it's funny how, how angry I got over the engine of my Jeep as if, you know, all of us have had cars that have never needed any repairs, you know, because every time you buy a new car, your thought is, this is the last car I'm ever going to need in my life. I'm never going to get rid of it. I'm never going to have to do anything with I mean, I kind of just treat my cars like that anyway. But I'm, I'm never going to have to do anything with it. It's going to run forever, repair-free. There's just that entitlement. And because there's that entitlement, there's an anger that goes along with it. But let's step back and think for a minute here as we get back to Jonah in this situation, seeing what God just did in his response to Jonah's drama. Does Jonah offer thanks to God for the shade? Does he acknowledge God's kindness for something as small as that? It was shade on a hot day. And God actually took a moment to provide Jonah with that shade. Well, no. No, Jonah doesn't do that. He wasn't thankful for that because when he loses the shade, he literally loses his will to live. How exhausting is it to be around Jonah? I don't want to look at my wife right now when I say that, right? But how exhausting is it to be around this dude? Not exhausting for God. He just asks him again. He just says, do you do well to be angry at the plant? And then he challenges him as we pick back up in verse 9. This is what he says. He says, Jonah, do you, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry. As a matter of fact, God, I do, is what he's saying. Angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant. Just get a sense of the language here. You pity the plant, God says, for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? Also much cattle? That's the way the book ends? Also much cattle. That's it right there. 
God says, you pity the plant. He's, he's creating a contrast here to open up something to Jonah that Jonah's blind to. He said, you pity the plant. Should I not pity Nineveh? He's saying, Jonah, do you, do you even hear yourself? Do you even see what has happened to your heart? You're angry because I destroyed a plant that I created for you that you had enough, that you had, you had no play in making on any level. But you're happy for me to destroy one 120,000 people who don't know their right hand for their left, meaning they don't even have a moral compass anymore. That's how darkened their hearts were. And number two, destroy innocent, unassuming animals. Like, like what about them, Jonah? Those are my creations as well. What, what about much cattle, Jonah? So this is how Jonah finishes. He finishes with unfinished ends. It feels like an unwritten chapter for us. So here's three observations that I want to make for our time left. The first one is this. We are warned against hypocrisy here. We are warned against hypocrisy. Jonah had become, in a lot of ways, like the Pharisees in Jesus' day. Remember the Pharisees? The religious community that kept all the laws, made sure the people, down, just down to the wire, were keeping every single law. Not every single law, but all these laws that they added to the laws. So there were laws upon laws upon laws that you kept. And the thing about the Pharisees is that they were like Jonah in that they could affirm truth about God, but they were simply intellectual truths that were not penetrating the deeper inner reaches of, of his heart. So Jonah is a brother that had lost all empathy. He had lost all care. He had lost all compassion. And the Pharisees, the religious people in Jesus' day, they, they were like Jonah. They kept the law, but the law was not kept in their hearts. Jesus warned his followers. He warned his disciples. He said, beware. He's all, don't let your life descend into that. Why did, why did Jesus warn over and over again in the Gospels, don't become like a Pharisee. Don't become somebody that just keeps the rules, thinking that that is what makes you right and have good standing before God. Why did he push that so hard? Because it's so easy for us to fall back into that. I mean, we sneeze and we're like back into that. We trip and we're back into that. It's natural. It's the natural man. It's the flesh is what it is. Augustine, one of the old theologians from the third, fourth century, I should probably know that. This is a quote from him. He says this, whoever thinks he understands the scriptures but does not love God and neighbor does not yet understand them as he ought. Did Jonah understand the scriptures? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he was, he was Israel's prophet. That brother knew the law, but there was no love in his heart for the people. So we are warned against hypocrisy. Number two, all of your appointments are divine. All of your appointments are divine. This means that when God moves in mysterious ways, we trust that he's moving. Does that make sense? So when you can't see what direction is God, what direction God is going, that doesn't mean God is going, not going. That just means that you can't see what he's doing and where he's going. That doesn't mean that he is inactive. We trust that he's moving. What has God appointed in your life? 
to get your attention. For Jonah, it was whales, plants, worms, and winds. It doesn't really matter what it is. But what we need to do, what we must do as God's peoples, we must look very seriously at those things that have risen up in our lives that we don't know what to do with, that are causing us discomfort, that are pressing down into us. And we need to have an understanding that it might be that a God is appointing these things in our life to do a work in us like he's doing with Jonah. Because none of this was dumb luck. None of this was dumb luck, right? Like when we say things like, I can't believe this is happening. I can't believe this is happening. You know what we're really saying with that? We're really saying, I don't believe there's a God who is working all things for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose, Romans 8, 28. That's what we're really saying. when we're just like, I can't believe that we blew another engine in the Jeep. This is crazy to me. All of our appointments are divine. Sometimes we don't see God break through. I need you all to listen to me. We got a few minutes. Sometimes we don't see God break through until things break. Could it be that God appoints broken moments in your life because you need to become broken? Jonah would tell us yes. To conform you more deeply into the image of Christ who was broken for you? I mean, what do we think that God's end game is here? What do you think that God's end game with your life is? It's not to provide more shade. It's not to provide more shade in your life. But God is so good and so gracious and so merciful that sometimes when there's heat, he brings shade. Why? Because he's merciful, gracious, and abounding in steadfast love. But God does not exist to provide shade. He exists to bring glory to his son. And if we get to that place because he removes shade from our lives and brings a scorching east wind, then what happens in those moments is we give glory to God for the things that we can't see, that we trust he is working together for good. And then finally, God will complete your unfinished ends. Okay, so listen, it's not shocking that God showed his love to a nation who repented of their sins. We see that all through scripture. We see that with the Israelites. It's not really that shocking. It's shocking and mysterious that he showed it to Jonah who continued to rebel. The book of Jonah is not really how God saved an unrighteous people. It's how God saved a self-righteous person. That's what's going on here. It's God writing a story that he leaves unfinished so that we understand that he's not yet finished with us. In Jonah, we, we see a God who, who's a writer. We see a God who is an author. We see a God who authors things. And what we know about authors, and I do a little writing myself, is that they control the narrative. When I sit down to write something, I get control of the narrative. My pen just doesn't magically fly off the handle. I write what I want to write. And so when we think of God, the writer and the author of all things, 
We think of somebody who is writing something that someday will be completed, but is in various states of unfinishedness so that we understand he's not finished. Hebrews 12, 1 through 2 says, Let us lay also aside every weight. Was Jonah weighted down? Yeah. But Hebrews says, Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Another translation says, the author and the finisher of our faith. So if you look to Jesus, then you have the assurance that all the unfinished ends of your life find their completion in Jesus Christ. That's it right there. 1 Corinthians 1.20 says, for all the promises of God, they find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has appointed us, anointed us, and who has also put his seal on us and given us the spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. So God authors our story. God finishes our story. Because everything that God starts writing, he completes. And you know, God doesn't need an outline. Like when I get ready to write something a lot of times, I lay out an outline because I don't know where it ends. And I don't know where the beginning, okay, I don't know where any of it goes. I don't know the beginning, the middle, or the end. So I have to write out an outline because I got I to gotta, I gotta figure things out. I need some structure. That's not God. God already knows the beginning, the middle, and the end. There was no part of Jonah 1 through 4 that God wasn't completely and fully and totally and utterly in control over. And we see that. That should be a comfort. Let that change and shape your theology today as Christians. Look at these things in your life that you're resisting, that you're running from. Look at the comforts in your life that are ruling your life. Look at the unfinished ends of your life. And then pull back and ask yourself, is God not authoring that? Is God not writing that? Will God finish those things that I look at in my life that aren't finished? Is he going to change something? Yes, he is. But he's not changing anything now. That's the story he's writing right now. Why? I don't know. Because God moves in mysterious and magnificent ways. John Bloom says, when God seems silent, trust his promises more than your perceptions. Because he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not? You're like, Ronnie, that's not the end of the verse. I know. How will he not? Just stop there. Just pause there. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not? Paul is making a, an argument. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The problem is, is that we're going to disagree with the things God's giving us. Because we only think that the things that God gives us, that we give glory back to him for, are blessings. But when he appoints that whale, when he appoints that worm, when he appoints that wind in your life. 
Those are burdens, but burdens are the seeds for the blessings that will someday come that we just can't see. And this is why Christianity is a faith. It's us believing in what we don't know, believing in who we can't see, and God blessing us for the faith that he provides for us to do that. Because why? He is gracious, he is merciful, he is slow to anger, and he abounds in steadfast love. And I trust that someday Jonah got back to this. And I trust that if we are found in Christ today, that God will bring us back to those things if we find ourselves in places like Jonah because he's good and because he cares. Amen? Let's pray. God, thank you for appointing things in our life. Most of all, thank you for appointing Christ, for sending your son who did obey you so that you would relent from punishing us for our sin. So God, we thank you for these deep, deep truths, these hard truths that we now have to think about and process. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would help us process, that, we would be, that you would give us wisdom to think through these different places and areas in our life like Jonah where we are like infants and we are pushing against what we feel we are deserving of. And we are looking at other people with animosity because we perceive that they are in a place that we think we should be in, not realizing that you are writing and completing another chapter in our lives so that we might have joy, so that our lives might be characteristics of ones that give glory to you through all things. So Lord, thank you that even the burdens that we face today, Lord, we can trust that someday we will see the good and the ends that you had in mind when we were feeling in our most unfinished places and moments in life. Thank you that you are that good. Thank you that we have a God that was so gracious, so merciful, so patient, and so loving that he sacrificed his own son. You put your own son through the ultimate discomfort. It was the ultimate east scorching wind for our sake so that we wouldn't have to bear the wrath of God. And what a joy that is now, Lord, as we stand, as we sing, as we say hallelujah, what a savior, that Lord, all things are in your hand. And Lord, that is a joy. And thank you for providing that for us today, Lord, as we sing, as we fellowship with one another, as we eat food with gratefulness because you've given it to us. Lord, right now as we're reminded of other churches that are preaching this gospel in this town, we think of Grace Brethren on 1144 Main. Or Pastor Dan, we, I think of him preaching the gospel right now, preaching a word of grace and mercy, and we thank you for him. We thank you for churches that hold to these deep truths. 
We thank you that we have brothers and sisters in our community that can say salvation belongs to the Lord. So Lord, encourage us today. Thank you again. And all these things we pray in Christ's name. Amen.